0: What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place With artists and authors from Maine.
1: Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU-FM Community Radio, your voice of many voices in Blue Hill, Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Earl H. Smith, a native of Waterville, a 40-year veteran of Colby College, former dean of the college, recently retired. And he is the author of a wonderful book, charming, informative, called "Down East Genius: From Earmuffs to Motorcars—Main Inventors Who Changed the World." Earl, thank you for joining us today on Conversations from the Pointed Furs.
2: Nice to be here.
1: We usually start these conversations asking for a little biography, a brief description of who you are, where you came from, and how you came to do this book.
2: Well, I'm a Maine boy and um, I was born in Waterville, and um, I went to the University of Maine and went to work at Colby College, uh, where I where I worked for forty years, mostly on an administrative capacity. When I retired uh, in two thousand and six, I I wrote a history of Colby called Mayflower Hill, and uh, and I've since written six other books, but. it, the the origin of Downey's genius comes mostly from having written um, uh, the uh, history of Waterville, which uh, which is called Water Village, and in it that uh, tells about two two local inventors who curiously were neighbors, uh, Alvin Lombard in nineteen oh one and invented the log hauler, who we all know, uh, and the, the, the most original invention on that machine, of course, was the Caterpillar tread. Uh, and he had a factory to manufacture the log hauler on College Avenue in Waterville. And And surprisingly enough, his next door neighbor was uh, Martin Kyes, who developed and patented uh, the way to make Paper plates out of spruce pulp, and so those two factories right in waterville and two rather significant impactful inventions led me to wonder about maine and inventors, and that got me down that path.
1: well, it's interesting the neighbors sort of represent a a a, a continuity from from harvest to production um clever in the sense that um uh, you could you could cut the trees uh, and then turn them into something practical, utilitarian, uh, without having to ship them to China and
2: back. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know how many the Maine's experience in all of that really followed where Maine was at the time, and so of course it was agricultural and 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 the sea. In the fields in the woods and so a, a, a number of early inventions related to those enterprises you know the,
1: the uh I've always been fascinated by the, the 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 figure of the the tinker uh it's a, it's a, sort of a mythological iconic figure uh, uh, a, a, an itinerant uh a uh, wise man uh, who can fix anything, uh, and if he can't fix it, he'll invent another way to do it. Uh, and it 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 just seems to me it's a kind of uh, again archetypal figure, uh, and one that is inherent to the to the idea of Maine.
2: I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I I'm intrigued by that whole whole notion. You know, in the beginning. Um... And I have some theories which I will share with you. But in the beginning, when Maine became a state 1820, there were only 300,000 people in all of Maine. That's in 22 million acres of land. There were only 300,000 people. Uh, so that, that the, the culture was one of... Isolation. Uh, nearest neighbors were a long way off, and the only transportation was by horseback, and and it developed a, a culture of independence, self-reliance, making do, wasting not. Uh, and I I really think there's something to that, which it gives, which accounts for the fact that there are so many. Uh, there were so many inventors in maine uh because they had to do it by them they had to do it by themselves. Most every farm had a forge and and workshops and barns and sheds where they had to do things for themselves uh and then you add to that the maine climate uh which is which which sort of encourages that isolationism where the people had to hunker down. And, and they it couldn't send to the store and couldn't send away for things they had to make them themselves and I, I go back to my experience at Colby if I can just make a little side point here um, I because I am a Maine person I had special interest in in the Maine kids who went to Colby uh, and through most of my time and today Colby uh, has become sort of an international college, but 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 it keeps its promise to Maine kids. And in any given year, ten to twelve percent of the student body are from Maine. And what I marvelled at was that while only ten percent of them or twelve percent were from Maine, every spring when the Phi Beta Kappa list came out, it would be almost half of them would be Maine kids. Um, and and i remember in in a span of thirteen years the college valedictorian at commencement eleven of them were for maine and so yeah. you have to ask yourself why is that you know i I, uh, I I know it's not terribly scientific but i i i think i credit the weather uh the isolation uh it it creates a culture of of uh, creativity, and I think that same thing was true for for inventors.
1: Well, there's, the irony, of course, is that uh, those values are absolutely necessary to survive today. Exactly uh, and that isolation um, uh, now essentially uh, uh, changed by climate conditions and by circumstances elsewhere makes the state uh very attractive uh for climate refugees uh but it also uh it represents a kind of independent streak that is seen in in even our legislature in, in it read, I always marvel when i read a headline that says Maine did something before California uh, yeah. and uh, it it it's a, it's a real tribute to those to those resources uh, you know, people talking about climate change say that you have to, uh, you know, adapt or mitigate, uh, which I think are short-sighted strategies. The real the real answer is invention. And exactly. that's what tinkers do. They invent. They are these creative spirits. At any rate, uh, you have many examples. Uh, some of them are just absolutely delightful. Uh, do you have some favorites or some particular ones you'd like to share?
2: Yeah, I I do uh I I do um I I think that the well let me just let me just say it's not possible to identify a single and and if the best invention ever in Maine, but there are a handful I think we might all agree on uh insulin uh Charles Best West Pembroke very near the Canadian border he was a 20-year-old graduate student at the University of Toronto, and worked with Frederick Banting, whom we all know is was. Oh, many of us know, was is credited with developing uh, the pancreatic hormone to make insulin. Um, but he worked side by side, Charles Best, with Banting, and when Banting. Got the Nobel Prize in 1921. He didn't want to accept it without including his young student, Banting. Uh, And the Nobel Committee said, "No, we don't give Nobel prizes to students." Uh, And he insisted, and and he and he insisted that that he share that prize with Charles Best. And uh, and in fact, shared the monetary prize for the Nobel with him. There's certainly very few inventions in Maine that have that have saved more lives than than insulin. Um, and then, of course, I go back to uh, the caterpillar tread. Um, uh, Lombard Orlando Lombard of Springfield, Maine, 1901, needed to was helping trying to figure out how to. Way to get timber out of the woods without abusing horses uh, and developed a, a, a steam log hauler the, the most important feature of which was the caterpillar tread and of course we know what the impact of that has been not only on tanks and heavy equipment but Maine's Maine's ubiquitous snowmobile is really the invention of lombard uh, with its caterpillar tread
1: let so, me get this that, right. The, the caterpillar tread had never been used or developed even leonardo didn't do the caterpillar tread
2: no That's no not, not 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 one that worked in any event this one actually worked uh, that is amazing and because that, oh. that 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 had a world worldwide impact uh, Hiram Maxim uh, of Sangerville is probably the most interesting person to me in the book. I mean I would in fact, I'd like to meet all these people and sit down and talk with them, but I would like to meet Hiram Maxim because he was a real character and long before he invented the machine gun, which is what he's best remembered for, he put the first fire sprinkler system in, he had the first lighting system in New York, Uh, for a long time, Hiram Maxim was um, engaged in a patent dispute with Thomas Edison over who had made the first incandescent light bulb. And Edison won by a matter of days, uh, filed his patent only just a matter of days. Speaking of, of patents, one of the things you and I had talked about before was the, the patent office, uh, a very interesting feature, and in one that I refer to often in the book. In you know, 1790, George Washington, first term, first inaugural address, said he needed to create a patent office. He could see it all coming. He knew that this country was going to just explode with new inventions, and somehow these people had to be protected because they started on the farms. Uh, agricultural before the Civil War, agricultural inventions. Uh, later in the factories during the Industrial Revolution, and more recently in laboratories, which I Maine is still among the leaders. But that started back with George Washington to record patents. They had it. It was housed along with the post office in a place in Washington D.C. called Blodgett's Hotel, which actually was never a hotel. And in 1836, Blodgett's Hotel burned down. And the man they got to put the patent office back together was a man by the name of John Ruggles of Thomaston. And he created the first U.S. patent and trademark office. Uh, Many of the original patents had been lost and some were they were able to refile and 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 collect them again, but others were lost sort of forever, and and the that's why the patent numbers today begin with X because in the eighteen from eighteen thirty six on, the numbers began X whatever X one the very first one, was Ruggles' patent for a um, train wheel a steel train wheel, that he devised that in enabled the the train to have more traction in the in the snow there you go weather again so you know
1: i've always been fascinated by the patent office it's something that that i suspect most people have no idea even exists and it has two pieces two parts well three parts to it first the protection aspect for entrepreneurs Uh, it is a way that somehow someone with a bright idea, even with no capital, can protect their invention and share, at least, in the benefit of it. Uh, And without that, we know that uh, a bright idea can be assumed or stolen very easily and very quickly. And there's so many stories of people who have invented things and who for whom have never been compensated for the value that they have created. Um, the other part of it, for me, as a material culture interest, are the drawings. And I think that the engineering drawings that are submitted with patents, particularly the historical ones, are absolutely elegant. They're works of art, yeah. um, and, and people don't really understand that or appreciate that uh, They're all filed away and and highly vulnerable. I think lots of them have been lost by fire. To fire. And then the third thing and uh, is the the models. Uh, if I understand it correctly, when you submitted a patent, you submitted the drawings and a description, but you also built a model to scale, and these were all stored in various places uh, and kept. And some of them also were. Lost to fire. I'm told many were stolen. And I once went to a barn up the Hudson River in New York State where a man had amassed a collection of something like a thousand patent models. How he'd gotten them, I don't know. Where they had come from, they had come from the office one time or another. Whether they'd been cleaned and legitimately put on the market or not, I don't know. But the idea was to collect them uh, for a museum and it was a financial transaction that uh, we could not afford and I don't know what happened to them uh, I know oh, the man yeah. died and for all I know they're still rotting in that barn
2: Well the the, the the whole patent business is rife with piracy and whenever money is involved as we know there's crooked, there are crooked deals but uh, in Maine, in the case of Maine, um, the very first story in the book is about Obed-Hazy of Hollowell, who developed the first reaper, uh, who was immediately challenged by Cyrus McCormick of Ohio, who said he developed the first reaper. And that began what we know today as the Great Reaper War, which went on for 20 years, 1834, 181855 where they challenged each other and fought in the courts and goodness knows, because the man who held the patent to the reaper, of course, was assured of a fortune. Actually, it turned out they both made out quite well in that one. Um, uh, as I said, Martin kai's developed a, a machine to make paper plates, very a Rube Goldberg kind of a device, which he, he made a model of that somebody stole and when he filed for his patent, the other fellow who was actually a co-worker claimed that it was his model and his drawing and his idea. And Martin Kaiser was sort of a fastidious guy so he kept very careful notes of his daily work. He kept a diary and he got his diary admitted in court and it proved that he had been the one who actually developed this machine. So the other fellow lost, and Martin Kai's won. Margaret Knight of York, who developed the flat-bottom paper bag, which, by the way, is no laughing matter, because flat-bottom paper bag is a rather important thing in this world, once we can figure out what kind of bags we're going to use. And she filed for a patent, and discovered that her model had been stolen or at least examined and well enough for somebody to replicate it and uh, she took this fellow to court for having stolen her idea and his only defense was that it wasn't possible for a woman to have been able to make such a complicated machine. It just simply wasn't possible for any woman to do that. Therefore, it was his. Thankfully, he lost. So, yeah, patent office and the patent business. And the other thing that happens, of course, is at the same time that you are trying to make something because we need it, I'm also trying to make the same damn thing. And so it brings people who are at the head of the line together, and they compete. And who knows who was the first one to do anything. But the patent office tries to keep that straight.
1: This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on W E R U F M. My guest today is Earl H. Smith, author of Downey's Genius, From Earmuffs to Motorcars, Main Inventors Who Changed the World. Well, uh, that Margaret Knight is an interesting example. I, I, when she died, she's she's in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Her obituary, according to your book, where she was hailed as as a woman's Edison, right. oddly, oddly and predictably put. I, I note that many many of
2: these people in your book are are women. Well, not as many as you think they would be, uh, and it's it's very clear that. What happened was that women, uh, up until the middle of the last century, the, the men owned the women, and so they were just shadowed. They did not have any rights. So they couldn't file for a patent. I'm guessing that a lot of inventions that women made were just handed over to their husbands, uh, but Margaret Knight was the exception. Margaret fought for women's rights without knowing she was fighting for women's rights, uh, little small things the patent office we were just talking about always filed patents by first initial last name so they filed her patent for the flat bottom paper bag as m knight and she fought with them and made them put margaret so that they would the world would know that it was a woman because there weren't very many women yeah
1: uh, well, it, you know, some of these things may may appear uh, mundane, but as you say, the, the flat-bottom paper bag is about as essential these days as, as any container that we have. Yeah. Um, some of these things are so, so ubiquitous that we don't really understand that somebody actually made them. The paper
2: bag is a very good example. I mean, you can imagine yeah. trying to carry apples around in a flat bag. You right. know, an envelope. <laughs> oh so, uh, yes, uh, Margaret, uh, Margaret uh, the, did a great job.
1: Uh, the toothpick is the other one.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, I, Foster and Dixfield didn't really invent the toothpick. Uh, the, the toothpick had been around since early times. But what he did was he he made the machine that could make toothpicks. And he made it from somebody else's machine. So he's sort of a as an outlier in the in, in the invention business, but he was no slouch. He had invented other things as well, and yeah, toothpicks. We was swimming in toothpicks. Take a slice off a log and cut it up, and he, they made shoe pegs with it. He figured out how to make them smaller and make toothpicks, and he had millions of toothpicks before he had any customers because. You didn't sell any toothpicks in Maine. Maine people went out to the woodpile with their jackknife and made their toothpicks, and they weren't <laughs> gonna pay for them. But he, what he did was hire students in Boston uh, to go to the restaurants, and when they left, ask for a toothpick. Now, at first, the merchants didn't know what the hell they were talking about. But of course, he, he followed up quickly with salesmen who sold the restaurant hours for nothing. Toothpicks, and it interestingly became a fad, sort of like the hula hoop, that people, everybody wanted to have their pictures, in their drawings of them with a toothpick in their mouth, even women. So for a long time, toothpicks were a fad. You had to have a toothpick in your mouth, and uh, of course that they they started making millions of toothpicks in Dixfield, Maine. Right uh
1: the toothpick seems like a small thing but then there are the other other things that are are enormous in their implication uh the stanley steamer for example i love the idea that they were first
2: dubbed flying teapots right the notion was the stanley brothers who twins thought that the automobile was coming one way or the other was coming by steam or gasoline and they thought that like a lot of people the gasoline was much more volatile and and dangerous uh and the safest way was steam now when we think of steam we think maybe the high pressure they would they, they but they didn't blow up they knew how to make them uh and they were safer but they were terribly expensive and they didn't last very long but the stain, Stanley steamer was a f- fascinating main invention
1: you wonder if there's any basis what do I know but a basis of of that as a a source of propulsion for the the automobile today i mean we're we're thinking about batteries and batteries of course have enormous ecological implications um that people really are not fully aware of. but what if you could just simply run your car on water true
2: whether it would be by steam from water or something else from water, I don't know. The the Stanley brothers ran into a problem because people as they are today and wanted to get in their cars and drive away uh, with a turn of a key or a press of a button and you couldn't do that with the Stanley. You had to get up ahead of steam. Uh, If we used water today, they they still have the issue of how you get ahead of steam in a hurry because people want to drive off. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, we we start our cars remotely so they warm
2: up so we can this get, up. True. Yes. <laughs> get up in the morning and, and get up ahead of steam in your car and off you would go. Well, on get water. Oh, go out, get the,
1: start the steam, go back, have a cup of coffee, and then you're ready to go.
2: Uh. Lamson's kite. Lamson's kite. Lamson, if he hadn't been excited about kites, probably could have beaten the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers used the Lamson kite. This was no ordinary kite. He made a kite that a man could fly in. And and they did. When they initiated this or tried the first time in Portland, there was a huge crowd. And they didn't put anybody on board. They put a bag of 200-pound bag of sand on board, and it went up, I don't know, 500 feet. And it's probably just as well there was nobody on board because the tether broke when it was up about 500 feet and miraculously it settled on the ground. But, yeah, the Lamson kite was an extraordinary thing in terms of understanding navigation. And the Wright brothers studied it. They actually bought one that they experimented with At Kitty Hawk,
1: and then there are the uh, the iconic main inventions. There are two that just leap out. Uh, One is uh, Moxie, yes, originally originally advertised as nerve food,
2: (laughs) and 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 chewing gum, yeah, Curtis's chewing gum, yeah, Moxie, Moxie. Even today, if you either, you don't like Moxie the first time you try it, and then you get addicted to it, you get accustomed to it. It, it and Coca Cola has bought Moxie, but Moxie was a big big deal, and the chewing gum was too. Uh, the LL Bean boot, of course, you know. Actually, what Bean did, the boot is one thing, and he and it is patented. And it's it's around the world. It's the most one of the most successful businesses in the world. And with and Leon Gorman and Bean, his his son-in-law, they they uh, developed the catalog business, which is really another kind of invention, which is as big as the boot, uh, which is quite big. Well, the catalog system, goodness gracious, oh, it's just, just amazing! amazing. It's just amazing! The complication
1: of the catalog business today is just enormous i don't i mean it's been felt in you know in this country in every small town where the catalog business starting with bean and sears eventually destroyed even the the hearts of these small towns with the small retailers and the pandemic of course has made it even more
2: now of course, the catalogs have gone online it just it, it's, it's the same thing yeah what
1: is the uh the Devil Paintbrush. I, let's go back to that a little bit. I mean, you know, inventions of tools of war. Yeah,
2: 1881, Hiram Maxim of Sangerville, uh we, we spoke about him earlier. He, there are all kinds of stories about why he did that. He and his father developed a machine gun when he was younger. But his father didn't have any money to make it, so they never made one. And by the time he made it in 1881, he was already sort of world famous uh, because he had taken the advancement of electricity and done all kinds of things. So he had many inventions before he made the machine gun. It's different from the Gatling gun, which was also an automatic weapon, in that it was it was it could be lugged around and moved and the Gatling gun didn't didn't go wasn't that transportable. So it was sort of a one man machine gun operation. Perhaps he thought actually his first customers I think were in Norway or Sweden, uh, for the machine gun. Interesting that they would be Known as peace-loving countries, the assumption was that if you owned the machine gun, if you if you were armed with the machine gun, there wouldn't be any wars, because uh, no one would dare go to war with anybody who had a machine that could could fire how many ever rounds a second. Uh, of course, they were wrong about that. The same argument was used for the atomic bomb. If we have the atomic bomb, nobody's going to go to war. Um, and, and the best insulin saved millions of lives, but uh, Maxim's machine gun took millions of lives.
1: So. Well, let's yeah. let's stay in the realm of, of uh, let's stay anti-war uh, okay. in the realm of, of, of social good.
2: Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, William T. Bovey. Bovey was a, um, worked in early, he worked in medicine, he was at Harvard. And he worked in medicine and radiology in the very early days of using radiology as a treatment for cancer. Um, Harvard, for whatever reason, denied him tenure. And so he moved to Maine, to Fairfield, and went to work for the Jackson Laboratories, and then took a position as a professor of physics at colby and he developed or he had by that time developed when he was at harvard he had developed a cauterizing knife a knife that would cauterize as it cut and it was called the bovie knife and in operating rooms today you will still that term is still used to describe the cauterizing knife which is the bovie knife he sold it to Harvard for a dollar, and oh. then and then move to move to Maine, but that's one that's a very significant healing device. Yeah. And once some somebody
1: told me that uh, I think it's Columbia University was given the patent for the the cigarette making machine. Oh, really? <laughs> so that every time every, any cigarette was made by anyone anywhere in the world, the machine itself generated a kind of royalty payment that went into the endowment of Columbia University. Don't quote me on it. I'm saying it publicly, but it just seems to me that these these hidden sources of revenue within endowments, they they do surprise from time to time. That,
2: that, could, that could cause a problem if you've mentioned that. Can we tell the students at Columbia that yes, yeah.
1: Another one in the terms of sort of public good, Neville Hopkins. Uh, you you talk here about him. He uh, devised a synchronized electric registration and voting system that allowed for mass voting by means of radio communications.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's the kind of father of absentee voting, you might say. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I, I gather. Also, here's a here's a side benefit. He found a method of identifying the number of radio sets tuned to a particular station. That is essentially the essence for the Nielsen rating system for radio and television advertising. Right, it's still it's being it's still being
2: used, internet. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah, to be able to tell how many people are tuned in. I always wondered how that was done. They say so many. Th- Millions of people watch the Olympics. I mean, how do they know that? It, it's apparently done electronically by the, these kinds of devices. Um, the donut hole. Donut hole. Rugg. What's heck Was his name Ruggles? No. Who's the donut hole? I've forgotten.
1: Well, it's easy to forget the donut hole. I well, mean, I, yes, it is. It, yeah. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: it's uh, Hanson Crockett
2: Gregory. Oh, yes, Gregory. I'm sorry, I couldn't, I can't always keep these people straight. He he was a Danish sea captain out of Rockport. Was it Rockport? I think so. So it goes. Uh, Danish cakes were what you'd know as a donut without a hole. And the frustration was always that they weren't cooked in the center because of the edges cooked faster than the middle. The story goes that he was aboard ship and a storm came up and he was eating a Danish cake. And in order to manage the ship, he plunked the cake onto the, onto the spool of the steering wheel. After the storm, he took it off and discovered that he a donut. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. And I'm very careful to say that in the book. But it's a nice story. Well, it's like Seinfeld. It's a story about nothing. How do you exactly? Do you, exactly. Uh, he, did, he certainly didn't invent the donut, no. but, but he invented the whole.
1: <laughs> As I was reading this, uh, I kept saying to myself, "Wouldn't it be great to just invite all these people over?" I know, and just sit around and have them there for an afternoon, and and see what happens. What yeah, yeah. would there be laughter? Would there be fisticuffs?
2: <laughs> well, no. I think I don't know. I would. I would just think that would be wonderful. I would. I would like to make my own table. I don't know who I'd put. It. I'd certainly put Hiram Maxim there. He was a character beyond words. He was an atheist. He he he, he railed against religion. Uh, I mean, crazy, it, but it, but his family were Millerites, and the Millerites believed not only that Christ was going to return, but they knew what day he was coming back, in 18, whatever date it was, in 1850-something or other, they set the date for for Jesus to come back, and of course, he never showed up, so, um, you know, his family sort of run out of town. But but this man lived a fac- fascinating life, and he had to have been a true genius. It, he, he he created many things. We think, of course, always of the machine gun, but there was much more to him. I'd put him around my table. Uh, how about Robert Benjamin Lewis?
1: This this is I mean this is really a very interesting story, particularly that. He also was not only an inventor of very practical things, like oakum for the the seams of the schooners, but he he received a patent uh, for a machine that cleaned and restored feathers, right uh, for high fashion
2: clothing. And then there's the a other, picture of it in the book. It's it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah, you you wonder what else it could be used for. I when know. You know I know, it's one of those pictures you were describing with these intricate, lovely works of art sometimes, these drawings of things, and that's one you say, I'll well, be damned, you know. He was, was a brilliant man.
1: The title on the patent drawing is Hair
2: Picker. Epic.
1: But the other one, the thing about him that I found just amazing was um, he wrote a book uh, called Light and Truth uh, published in Portland in 1836. And you write in your book The 176-page book is perhaps the first history book about African-Americans and Native Americans and considered as a foundational text for Black nationalism. It included short sketches of prominent Black leaders and denounced notions of white superiority. An expanded 400-page edition of that book was published in 1843, and the book would see two more printings. I wonder if it's still in print.
2: Oh, I don't think so. I think you could get your hands on one, though. It would not be hard to get your hands on one. Yeah, I think that
1: would yeah. be a pretty important resource. Um, well,
2: I think it has to do too. Uh, I think, Peter, that it, it it may have a lot to do with Maine was Maine was largely Baptist. Maine was largely anti-slavery. Um, you know, this was a hotbed of of abolition. Uh, but I'm wondering if things like that book and other things hadn't brought that way of thinking along in Maine. And that was not true everywhere, of course, as we know. But in Maine, certainly, Maine, Maine was very tenacious about that subject.
1: This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on W E R U F M. My guest today is Earl H. Smith, author of Downey's Genius, From Earmuffs to Motorcars, Main inventors who changed the world. In my other life, I'm I'm obsessed with fresh water and the ocean, and you have a chapter here called Submarinas. Submarinas. You what know those inventions?
2: Yeah, that was the guy that invented what what became the scuba diving equipment. That one makes me every time I think about that. I laugh. I it makes me giggle because this man. He worked along the river, the Webb River, and, of course, they were always losing things off the docks and overboard, and they had no really good way to retrieve them. And so he, and by that time, Goodyear had developed vulcanized rubber. hadn't been put to good use, and it wasn't perfected yet, and it, it, it actually stunk. It was very putrid. But it was it was useful for some things, and he decided to make a diving suit out of it, put on a helmet with a glass front, attach tubes to send in air and expel air, and put lead weight in the feet so that the diver would stay upright when he was lowered into the water. And I in my mind I keep thinking about that poor son of a gun, who put that suit on. This was in March in the Webb River and was had to be lowered over a boat with lead, lead weight in his feet and placed on the bottom. I mean, who was this man? And I called everywhere I could not, I cannot find his name. I think he ought to be honored somehow. I mean, yes, it's one thing to develop the suit. It's quite another thing to put it on as the first person and be pushed overboard, I mean, I just think that's interesting
1: well the the inventor's name we have not mentioned was Leonard Norcross
2: norcross yeah, but he named the his he son
1: is, is remains unknown
2: right. The guy that went in the overboard who should be honored is not honored um, and and uh, Norcross did a lot of invention, but he was very proud of that. He named his son Submarinus. <laughs> I wonder how that went down in high school. I don't know what they called him, subby.
1: (laughs) Then there are sort of the fashions, besides the bean boot, the earmuff.
2: Yes, yeah. Well, Chester Greenwood, uh, Farmington, had big ears. Um, They were always getting cold. His grandmother, they took some, I think, tufts of beaver, and she sewed them onto a wire spring. Uh, and what he patented was this wire that you put over your head that that grasped your head, not much to it, and that was sort of like the toothpick in a way. It was, became acceptable fashion, and then it became a fad that you, you really didn't need anything more than a pair of earmuffs that you would be Kept warm, and for for years, Farmington was the capital of the world in producing earmuffs, and then, of course, they developed hats that covered your ears, and that sort of went south.
1: Well, this gentleman, Chester Greenwood, uh, yeah. really has a very distinguished career. He, according to your book, uh, he created some one hundred and thirty devices. Yeah. Um and the Smithsonian has ranked him among America's 15 most outstanding inventors. And you list some of the things here. We never even think about it, but the uh, the steel leaf rake.
2: Yes, which way everybody has.
1: Yeah. Everybody's got one. Uh, the shock absorber akin to one used in modern airplane landing gear. Um, right. An improved spark plug. A decoy moose trap. And the forerunner of today's folding bed.
2: This guy I was running saying. around f- figuring things that really the, the, that they needed that they didn't have. And we all do that today. I sometimes do that. I'm thinking, I wonder if I could think of something that we don't have that we need. What am I doing every day that I could make easier if I could invent something?
1: Well, talk about a legacy. I mean, if if you're interested in posterity, you want your life to be remembered long after you've gone Invent some Donut hole or, or or the steel leaf rake. And yeah. every time somebody has a cup of coffee or rakes their leaves, they're holding your legacy in there. Exactly. Their
2: exactly. Now you can own my book.
1: I've got your book, by the way, highly recommended. Uh, go to your independent bookstore. Uh, it's published by Islandsport Press, which is a main publishing company. We're blessed uh, to have it. Yes. Yeah. Uh let's just stick with Greenwood just for a minute uh, and talk about his wife,
2: uh, Isabel Wittner. She was, uh, she was a woman's rights. She tried to take care of women's rights and protect the women. It was a time of labor movement, and women were really at the bottom of the totem pole, as they were in all the factories. We think of all these main factories making fabrics and wood products and stuff most of the time most of the machines were operated by women there's a classic picture I don't think it's in the book uh, it might not be it, I think it might be in the Waterville book of women working at the looms at the Lockwood plant in Waterville and four guys standing on sort of a balcony watching them work and all these women were working, probably paid by the piece. But but Greenwood's wife worked hard to improve the rights of women. Yes, she did. There's a
1: photograph in your book of the family on the stoop of their home in Hill Street, Farmington. And it seems that there were four children. Mr. Greenwood is very stiff and straight with a full mustache and a bow tie. Yeah. Both sons are stolid and, and square-jawed, wearing neckties. The youngest son also is in a tweed jacket and necktie. Um, the mother, Isabel, also wearing a necktie. She's basically dressed in man's fashion. Yeah. It's a wonderful... And, the, and then the, the there is a young daughter, and she is not in a necktie, uh, but... It's quite beautiful, actually. This this is a great photograph. <laughs> I yeah. love looking at it.
2: Who have we left
1: out, Earl?
2: Well, I don't I don't know. You know, we've left out a lot of people. I'm gonna say this. Especially during the Industrial Revolution when people worked in factories. It's interesting as we know that that while the methods of making things were pretty much fixed, the individual factories were somewhat unique. In other words, the, the the equipment was generally built from scratch. And that's why the, the, the cities had ironworks, Waterville, Portland, Augusta. They had places where they made the parts for the machines. My guess is, well, I mean, I actually know this is true, and I've heard from people, my grandfather invented this while he was working at Scott Paper Company or well before that, Hollingsworth and Whitney or whatever. And there's no doubt but what that's true, because when, when you work for somebody and you were on a piece of machinery and you figured out, you, day after day, you figured out a way to make that machine work better, that patent went not to you, but to the, your employer. Uh, and so there are tons of unsung inventors out there. Speaking of that, I don't always know who they are, but I'm always run, running into somebody. Who did I run into the other day? I made a note of it. What well, while you're thinking, I can
1: give you one. I I knew personally uh, executives of a company who made its fortune on the paper milk carton the excello corporation so every Uh time you buy a quart or a gallon of milk or cream in one of those paper cartons that is a royalty that was patented and the company eventually became diamond international paper company uh and the man who invented that was a worker in a waste paper company where they had were just recycling cardboard and out of that he Derived the design for the product, and never received a penny.
2: No, that's very common. I think that's yeah. that, that's that's very common. There are two people, I think Peter, before were finished, that would have to be mentioned in in the context of main inventors, and one of them is a rather modern day, uh, Charles Peddle. Of Bango, who died just three years ago, Ooh. who invented the computer chip. I mean, that is an amazing invention, and it gives rise to all of our personal computers. Our entire life is based upon these days of that invention of of Charles Peddle, because he made the personal computer possible to buy. You know, and reduce the price and everything. And so he's a remarkable main inventor, ranking right up there with the best of them. I heard the other day I was going to tell you, Frederick Alby of Alna, somebody I missed in the book. His father was an arborist, and his father taught him how to graft trees. This was during World War One or before World War One. He devised a way to graft bones, bone grafting, which hadn't begun until World War One, and you can imagine the need for that. And I, he should have been in my book, and he's not. So
1: uh, We're running out of time. And uh, so that's my segue into uh, Frank Bunker Gilbreth, uh, who was very successful as a general contractor. He built mills and dams and power plants in the United States and in Europe. And he was a bricklayer, I guess, originally and invented building tools and machines, including the safety scaffold for bricklayers, uh, conveyors and improved concrete mixer. I mean, here's a man wh- whose inventions are around us as we build infrastructure to this day.
2: And and, a, and an expert on time and motion, who is still in the textbooks today, Gilbreth, cheaper, he- cheaper by the Dozen cheaper by the dozen of the, the film about his
1: his family of 12 children with Clifton Webb and Myrna Loy. But yes. that time and motion study thing, he did it with his wife, according to your book, Lillian right. Moeller-Gilbreth, who was a psychologist. right? And they conducted these studies and built a reputation as efficiency experts.
2: Exactly. Uh, the beginning Gilberth
1: of all that. It's ongoing. I mean, it's an, a huge psycho industry out there that is, you know, in terms of management studies and efficiencies and the organization of production
2: worldwide. And his theories are still the basis of these studies. Very, very interesting man. Well, I think we've run out of time.
1: I love your book. I just thought it was so interesting, not just in terms of the history of industry and invention, um, but as a catalog of ingenious people, creative people, they're all artists in their way. Uh, and as a carnival of characters, when you read the book, it's it's brief, but you get a picture of these people in a way that, that I found really entertaining and empathetic. And, um, you know, I go around now and I just look at my neighbors differently. And I realize that every one of them is an inventor. Yes, and probably true. In, in their way, everyone is inventing something. And isn't that the way forward? No no doom, no gloom. If you have a problem, fix it. Fix it. Let's leave that as our sort of final admonition uh, here in conversation with Earl Smith. Um, thank you, Earl. Thank you. My guest today has been Earl H. Smith, native of Waterville, Maine, and former dean at Colby College. His book, Down East Genius, From Earmuffs to Motorcars, Maine Inventors Who Changed the World, is published by Islandport Press, Yarmouth, Maine, one of several small publishers in the state who specialize in personal memories and local histories, books not always easy to find unless you frequent your local independent bookstore or contact the publisher directly. I urge you to do so. This is the fifth edition of Conversations from the Pointed Furs, interviews with authors and artists who evoke the spirit of Maine. Previous conversations have been with Mitru Paul, indigenous poet and teacher, on the idea of wilderness as first formed by the first peoples of Maine. Chris Newell, director of the Abbe Museum in Bar Harbor, on how to release the cultural power of artifacts and crafts. Rob McCall, essayists and columnists on the history of nature writing in Maine, and Gordon Bach, musician, writer, and rememberer, interpreter of memories of the Atlantic coastal tradition through story and song. If you missed any of these, you can find them archived at weru.org and pointedfurs.org. We would love to hear your reaction to these programs, and if you are so moved, invite you to share your thoughts, comments, and recommendations by email to info at pointedfurs.org. Thanks for listening. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnet Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point, There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal.
0: Conversations from the Pointed Furs is a Leitz Island Books audio project, produced by Tricia Badger, with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find Archive Public Affairs shows at weru.org and find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.